Let's open our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Last week we started a series called Life's Necessary Ingredients. The inspiration from the series came from my years of studying the great men and women of faith in the Bible, those who went the distance, those who achieved, those who fulfilled their calling from God in great and mighty ways. I've read over a hundred biographies, and as I read the people in the Bibles, I read these biographies, I started to see necessary ingredients for a life that will be of purpose and will make you thrive. And so my list of these ingredients are purpose, intimacy, courage, optimism, and resiliency. Whatever you can do, try to build these traits in your life, and I think you'll fulfill God's plan for you on the earth. Now last week we talked about purpose. I think this is the main ingredient in life. This is what stirs the drink. Everyone in this room has an alarm clock that tells you when to get up, but there's nothing that tells you why to get up. That's something we have to figure out. If you don't know why you're getting up, you start to die a little. And last week, we looked at a man who started to die a little. His name was Solomon. Solomon was gifted by God in great wisdom. He had power and wealth. Uh, the kings of the world would come to hear of his wisdom. The queen of Sheba, when she came to Solomon, she said, I have heard of your wisdom, now I've seen it. The laboratory was Jerusalem. She saw the temple. She saw how it was adorned. She saw the structure. And this man was so gifted, he wrote um, 3,000 songs, 1,000 proverbs. He wrote four books of the Bible. And yet he went on this quest to find the purpose and meaning of life, what he calls under the sun, sans God. And it drove him crazy. And he gives us the conclusion, we looked at it last time, that it was meaningless, it was vanity of vanities, that life was empty, it made no sense, it was like chasing after the wind. I want to bring you into the present. Uh, last century, Hugh Morehouse was a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Chicago. Uh, he sent his copy of Modern Man in Search for a Soul by Carl Jung, the famous uh, psychiatrist and author, and he sent his own copy to Carl Jung because he wanted it autographed. And he slid a piece of paper in there and he said, Mr. Jung, could you tell me what is the meaning and purpose of life? Carl Jung sent it back and said, I do not know. But it looks as though exactly something was meant of all of this. Morehouse was so moved by this later in his career over the years, he wrote 250 letters to distinguish uh, people in academia, the best and brightest scientists he could find asking the same question, what is the purpose and meaning of life? You know what the number one answer is? I don't know. They agree with Solomon. Life is empty. It's devoid of purpose. Nietzsche, the famous atheist, said, life is an unprofitable episode that disturbs an otherwise blessed state of non-existence. Nietzsche admitted in all his atheism, this idea of purpose still, still rattled the mind. It was still all around us. You couldn't escape it. Fred Allen said, life is a slow walk down a long hall that gets darker as you approach the end. I will not be quoting him when we talk about optimism. <laughs> Harry Goddard Sr. said, the purpose of life is to live as long as you can. Why? Because if there's no purpose here, then there's no purpose where we're going. This is all there is, so live as long as you can. And every time you check out, all the magazines at the grocery stores tell you how to live longer, how to eat, how to exercise. Why? Because this is all there is. And none of them give us a sense of purpose. And Solomon, in all his questing, in all his searching, he finally comes to his senses. And I shared this last week in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where he looks at life not under the sun, but under heaven. 
under God's domain. And he says these brilliant words, to everything there is a season and a purpose for every time under heaven. And he said not only is there a purpose, not only is there a God working through all the seasons, all the ups and downs of life, but he tells us that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And that he's put eternity within our hearts. There's something beating in your chest other than your heart, and it's a human soul. And it needs to be tended to, it needs to be cared for, it needs to be enriched, it needs God, it needs other people. The Bible emphatically emphasizes over and over again in almost every book and every chapter that human beings were uniquely designed by God, made in his image, designed for a purpose. Last week I read to you Psalm 139. And I know in a new year, a lot of people think, okay, this is the year I'm going to read through the Bible. So you run out and you get a one-year Bible. That's wonderful, except if you're just trying to complete a task. I think one of the things you might practice is a spiritual discipline called scripture saturation. That's where you read one chapter over and over again, maybe every day, maybe for a month, maybe all year. If you lack in self-esteem or self-worth, Psalm 139 could be your psalm, where God says, Uh, Or the psalmist says, Lord, you search me and you know me. You know my innermost parts. You know my coming and going. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The whole psalm talks about uniqueness and purpose. If you're looking for another verse, Jeremiah 1.5, you know it well. Thus says the Lord, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you and ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. God said, I put your DNA in you. I'm the one who designed how tall you would be, how short you would be, what color hair you'd have, your likes, your dislikes. But I also decided your vocation, you would be a prophet unto the nation, and life is figuring out that purpose. A lot of you came to me last week, wrote me through the week, email and so forth. Pastor Bob, I love the series. I love talking about purpose. I went out and bought all these books. It was wonderful. You know what I share with everybody? I said, you know what? That's the easiest message I'll ever preach. Because the preparation for this series is the preparation of my life. Every book I read, everywhere I travel, is me trying to figure out what life looks like for a 53-year-old church leader. And if I wasn't a pastor, if if I was a banker, a butcher, I would still be reading these books, still figuring out what life looks like for me. And so what I'm trying to do is share some of that with you. And I want you to know, I haven't figured it all out. I'm a fellow traveler. I have the same Bible you have. I worship the same God you do. He loves you as much as he loves me. Can I make one final point on purpose? Because I could talk about this for a long time. I want to introduce you to a man that has changed a lot of people's lives. His name is Bob Buford. Some of you may have read his book. Bob Buford was a Texas businessman who reached every career goal, every life goal by the age of 43. He was the CEO of a successful cable TV company, Happily married, had the big house, the boats, the cars, all the toys. He was set for life. His children were set for life. But he had this clawing, nagging sense that something was lacking. What we see in Solomon, that vanity of vanities. And so he did what businessmen only know how to do. He hired a consultant, of all things. And he sat with the consultant for weeks. And finally, the consultant said, Bob, here's the way it works. And the consultant drew a box. And he said, Bob, you got to figure out what goes in the box. And he said, from all this analysis, from two weeks of talking to you, uh, there's basically two things in your life. You love God, and you've made a boatload of money. But I'm not sure you know what goes in the box. Bob Buford struggled with this. 
No one had ever questioned him in this way. No one had ever poignantly uh, directed him with a significant question, and it stunned him. Stunned him. He and his wife sat down and thought, oh my gosh, if we put God in the box, does that mean all our money dries up? Do we become missionaries? This was a, a midlife crisis for Bob Buford. That quest turned into a book called Halftime, one of the best Christian books ever written to men, where he talks about this wrestling and then finally putting God into the box where he belongs. And he writes this book and he coins this phrase, how he moved from what he called success to significance. Here's the point I'm trying to make. You're never going to find purpose in life, even if you're in your sweet spot, even if you're doing what you were meant to do, until God goes in the box. Some of you aren't Christian. Some of you are kicking the tires of Christianity. Maybe somebody brought you here. For 21 years, basketball was in my box. It's what got me up in the morning. It was my purpose. And the question is, what's in your box? Some of you Christians, you, you're Calvary Chapelites. You love God. You come here. You love fellowship. You love everything we do. I'm not sure God's in the box. For some of you, the girlfriend's in the box. Marriage is in the box. Your kids are in the box. Careers still in the box. I want to challenge you to put Jesus in the box, to make him Lord, to let everything flow out of that. He said that he was the way or the path to God. He said he was the truth of God, the life of God. Find him, you find your purpose. Put him in the box. Life makes all the sense in the world. And he begins to lead and guide us. If anything else is in the box and you're a Christian, it's idolatry. It really is. He needs to be in the box. Now, once life has purpose, once you know why you're getting up in the morning, you'll be fulfilled, but if you don't have the next ingredient, you'll still have the nagging sense of disappointment. And it's what we're going to talk about today. I think it's life's missing ingredient, and it's intimacy. Intimacy is what we long for. It's what almost every song on the radio is about, intimacy or the lack thereof. You all got your recipe cards on the way in? Hope the system worked. You got your recipe card, right? You're going to grade yourself on where you are in intimacy at the end. You're going to take notes, right? Um, Do you ever make your favorite recipe and you're lacking like a key ingredient, but you go ahead and make it anyway? Like in our house, chocolate chip cookies, right? Everybody but me makes them. You'll smell chocolate chip cookies wafing through the halls at my house in the morning, the afternoon, even two in the morning. You'd be laying in bed like, oh my gosh, what's that smell? Uh, No longer do we buy the ingredients, now my grown kids buy the ingredients. And uh, every once in a while, you should see what it looks like when the chocolate chips are the missing ingredient. Oh my gosh. Do you ever have chocolate chips without the chocolate chips? Yeah, it's not good. Uh, The one time I made them, I put salt in for sugar. Do you ever make that mistake? Yeah, not good. Uh, In our house, fajitas without sour cream. Somebody will get up, run the Wawa, can't have fajitas without sour cream. I can't have a hoagie without chips. There are ingredients that must be there. And intimacy is the one for life. Again, God's put this in every one of us. Every human being, whether you admit it or not, has a need to love and be loved, to know and be known, to give and to receive. God placed it there, and he placed it there for a reason. Last week, I gave you a short definition for intimacy. I want to expand it, and I want to leave it on the screen a little bit. I want it to seep into your spirit. Intimacy is the understanding and celebrating of each other's innermost worlds. 
Intimacy is the trust-filled exchange, listen, of soulish information. It's the gradual revelation of private thoughts and feelings that are very near the heart of who we are to someone we love and trust. That's very important. It's the willingness to take the risk of revealing core truths, even dark truths, in the context of safety and love. It's the promise to stop pretending with another person. It's a commitment to stop concealing important revelatory data that could bond one another deeply in the information were shared or expressed. Is there any way you could read that definition and think that on Facebook you really have 500 or 2,000 friends? I mean, be honest with me. You know, I'll stick with the greatest theologian I've ever met, Rocky Balboa, who said the amount of true people you could ever be intimate with, you could fit in a phone booth, and it's true. And if you don't remember what a phone book is, Google it and you'll see it. A phone booth, you know, fits about two to three people. You can't be intimate at this level with more than three to four people in life. And it began for Adam in a garden. Now, I want you to understand, Adam had intimacy with God. And that's important because a lot of people will say, well, I have God, I don't need anyone else. Well, Adam did. And Adam needed someone else by God's understanding. Adam looks down in a perfect environment, a perfect world. In Genesis 2.8, he said, something's not good. It's that the man would be alone. And he fashions or he custom makes a woman. And Adam said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Anatomically, few things have changed, but a man will now leave his mother and father, be joined to his wife. And Adam saw something in Eve, something that was there that could not be there with any other human being, and that was intimacy. They could be joined together and become one flesh. They would have sexual, physical intimacy. Now, sexual intimacy, physical intimacy, in the Bible's definition is very simple. It's one man for one woman in holy matrimony, everybody else abstinent. You don't need to get into social issues. That's the definition. Everyone else abstinent. Is, is sexual intimacy, is physical intimacy in a marriage the height of intimacy? I don't know if it's the height, but it's really strong. It's so strong that when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and remember Corinth, I'd been there uh, Corinth was a, was a very prosperous city. It was like a Chicago or a New York. And, and up on a hill, there was a temple with a thousand temple prostitutes. Paul was writing to a sexually immoral church. You know what he said? That if you have sex with a prostitute, you become one with her. Paul said there's no such thing as casual sex. Paul said there's the mystical bond that exists in marriage when you sleep with someone exists no matter who you sleep with. This is why G.K. Chesterton said every man that goes to a brothel is looking for God. People that hook up, sleep around, live together are leaving pieces with them, of themselves with everybody they sleep with. God made this bond to be strong. That's why when the Bible talks about sex, and it talks about pleasure, read the Song of Solomon. Whenever it talks about sex, it'll say Adam knew Eve and they bore children. Because the physical intimacy starts with emotional intimacy. The bond of sexual intimacy is so strong, both the Old and New Testament say that if you're married, never let this go to the back burner. Do anything you can to fight for this expression of emotional and physical intimacy that comes through this making of one flesh. Now, I know what's going to happen tonight. Somewhere around 11 o'clock in the bedroom, guys are going to be nudging their wives saying, hey, hon, did you listen to Pastor Bob this morning? And that'll be the first time you've ever asked that question or quoted me. <laughs> and a lot of ladies will be mad. 
There's a lot of complications in this area, right? We get older, women have children. Uh, Along the marital road, physical intimacy can wane. I can't talk about it here. We need to talk about it somewhere. There's great books you can read. There's counseling in this area. I'm just saying whatever you can do, make sure this stays at front and center of your marriage. But if intimacy is a necessary ingredient, it has to go beyond marriage. It has to be more than physical. Uh, The greatest friendship in the Bible, almost everybody would have preached on it today, is Jonathan and David. If you go back and read the story, it'll say the love that they had for each other was stronger than a man's love for a woman. It was very powerful. The Bible has a lot to say about intimacy between human beings, and most of it's couched in this word friendship. I asked you to open to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Let's look at verse 7 where Solomon says, Then I returned, and I saw another vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother. So we're not talking about marriage here, although the verses I'm going to read are always read at a wedding. Nor, uh, yet there is no one who will benefit from his labors. Nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself this good? Right? I'm working, but it's to the benefit of no one else. Uh, Solomon said, this is misfortune, it's vanity, it's, it's empty. And then he says these words, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. That's obvious, right? You go into business, you get a partner, all the sense in the world. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. For he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Uh, Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand them, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. So a lot of this is common sense, right? We need each other. We need God, but we need God with skin on. We need human beings. That's the way we were designed. Uh, This is so common sense. Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Even here, if we send somebody on a trip or to a conference, we always send two because the learning goes up. So intimacy is... uh, Designed by God, it's couched in friendship. You know what a game changer was for me? When I read the Bible for the first time, I read the Gospel of John. I would read a chapter a night, and the words were just jumping off the page. And so I'm reading about Jesus, and I knew about the disciples because I grew up in religion, so I knew who they were, and, you know, he's the leader of the team. And I'm looking through it that lens, and they're making mistakes, and he's fixing them. But in John chapter 15, verse 13... This was groundbreaking to me. Jesus said, greater love no one has than this than to lay down his life for his friends. He said, you are my friends if you do what I've commanded you. And he told the disciples, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant knows not what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. Now I don't know about you, but the church I grew up in God was mysterious, he was distant, he was running the universe. The idea that you could talk to God or he could talk to you to pray out loud, forget being your friend. I didn't even know God was around. And here in this verse, the God of the universe, clothed in humanity, the mystery of godliness, Jesus taking on human flesh, he becomes intimate with his creation. And it wasn't mere words. Jesus would demonstrate this at the highest level when he would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane means the place of the press, where olives are pressed. Jesus arrested that night, was being pressed, the weight of the world coming on him, the sin of the world. 
And he comes that night sweating great, great drops of blood. And he comes to Peter, James, and John, his closest friends. The men he had a deep convic- connection with for three years. And he said, my soul is troubled. Come watch with me. Jesus needed human companionship. He needed intimacy in that time of press. I want to share with you the steps to intimacy. I'm not an expert in this. I've just lived life. I figured a few things out. The first step of intimacy may shock you, and it's this, self-knowledge. You need to know yourself. Now, this isn't staring at your navel and healing in the memories and looking within inside yourself. That's not where we're going. But if you go back to my definition about the sharing of each other's innermost worlds, the connection of souls, how can you share a world you don't know about, right? Now here's the problem. We all have a family of origin. Uh, families of origin are all different. In some of your families, you were, you, you were taught to express yourself, even at odd times. Uh, I know families here, they become Christians, you visit them, they're screaming at one another, and you take them aside and like, wait a second, you guys are Christians now, you can't act like that. You're screaming at one another. They're like, we're not screaming, that's just how we communicate. So that's one side. And then there's people that are taught to repress who they are, uh, especially men. One of the beauties of coming to Christ is you read a man like David who was very expressive, And the more you begin to read the scriptures, the more God begins to reveal about you and you begin to learn about yourself, who you are in Christ. Uh, Some of you will need help. You know, I've seen a Christian counselor. It's been a tremendous help for me. Uh, I've done personality tests. I've read the five love languages. I've had to figure out how I'm wired. And it's helped me with the way I communicate to others. Step two to intimacy is communication. Now, this is where everything breaks down, right? This is where marriages break down, parent-child relationship, employer-employee. If you don't communicate each other's worlds the right way, you'll never get anywhere. So I'm driving to church of all places with my wife. We always take separate cars. And she's talking and I'm listening. That's usually the scenario. Uh, Women have like three times the word capacity in a day than men do. So she's talking, 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 talking. I'm listening, listening, listening. And she stopped herself mid-sentence. She goes, oh my gosh. And instead of saying, are you listening, which she normally would say, she said, oh my gosh, I just remembered. Women's brains are like spaghetti. We're all over the place. And you're a man and your brain is a waffle. You think in compartments. And she said, right now, we're going to church. You're thinking about your message. So you're not listening to a word I'm saying. And we grew a little in the car that day. In our personality test, I'm a fire, she's a wind, which means we have a tendency for high combustion. So we've got to figure that out, right? But here's what I love about my wife. She was an excellent mom for this reason. Now, when we were dating, we weren't Christians. But I remember dating her, and I thought this was strange, because my dad was a drummer, and we were in a club listening to my dad. And and she's my girlfriend at the time. And she shared with me, she said, you know, when I have kids, I'm going to go clubbing with them. Now, here's what she was trying to say, and I did think she was weird. What she was trying to say, she came from seven, and they didn't get a lot of one-on-one interaction with their parents. And she said, I want to know who my kids are. I want to connect with them. And I got to tell you, um, in all the years of raising our kids, our kids might not have the best manners. They might lack in a lot of other things, but they never lacked for being known. If I told you how many nights my wife was at the top of the stairs with my girls, 
talking about emotional things, you wouldn't believe it. But that's what's important. It's not important that they make every team. It's important that you know them and where they're going and help them through life. Step number three, I'm so passionate about, I gotta watch myself here. You're never gonna be intimate if you're not available. This is a problem for guys, it's probably a problem for girls. Now the book of Proverbs is, a, is not a book of theology, it's a book of wisdom. It's a book that gives you the skills necessary to live life. And there's dominant themes in Proverbs. How to handle money is a dominant theme. How to avoid sin is a dominant theme. A dominant theme in the book of Proverbs is friendship. It has a lot to say about friendship. I've drawn out two verses. The first verse is Proverbs 17, 17. It says a friend loves at all times and a brother is born of adversity. The second one is Proverbs 18, 24. A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, notice those two things. A friend loves at all times and a friend is closer than a brother. I never figured out what that meant. C.S. Lewis brings this out like only he can in his book, The Four Loves. And in The Four Loves, when he talks about the friendship relationship, he talks about the friendship relationship, this is fascinating, being the only love relationship where we get nothing out of it, right? So track me with, with me on this. Every other relationship we're in, we have skin in the game, right? So with my spouse, I have arrows or erotic love. With my children, I bore them. They have my blood running through their veins, right? God and I have agape love. And even my siblings, right, my brothers and sisters, we have shared history, okay? And similar blood running through our veins. The friendship or the phileo love is the only love that has none of these. It's a deliberate act of love. There's nothing to be gained. And yet, it says a friend can be closer than a brother. How could this be? Very simply, you were born into your family of origin. You did not choose your brothers and sisters. You were just placed there. We choose our friends. And we go back to John chapter 15. Jesus said, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends. And the next verse says, and you didn't choose me. I chose you. Wow. Jesus chose us to be his friends. That means we choose the people we have chemistry with, we have connection with, we have shared vision. We choose the people that we're going to live life with and share intimacy. Now this will change over the seasons of life. I really believe some of your friends you'll go the long haul with. Others will change in seasons of life. There have been great pockets of my married life where my closest friends were single men. You know why? Just going to be honest. Married men are unavailable. They got every excuse in the world to never do anything, which to me is to the detriment of their marriage. Sitting around in your pajamas watching Netflix night after night with your wife is not a recipe for a healthy marriage. Men need men. Men need relationships with women. We need intimacy in all its forms. Uh, every year I take a group of men. Uh, we have a history about this. There's six or seven of us that... I make steak sandwiches for them at my house and then we go to a movie and usually come back and play games or so forth. Uh, one time we went out to dinner and we're sitting there at dinner and I looked up and every guy was on his phone. Every guy. Every guy on his phone, most of them to their wives. And I'm like, guys, we're all here. 
What are we doing? You can't go deep with anybody if you're not available. Uh, this really hit home to me recently. Happened two different times with colleagues that do not live in this state, so don't play a guessing game. Um, who I've been very intentional with. Intentionality is a big part of friendship. I've been intentional to go to conferences with them, make sure we catch up one, once a year, golf, uh, stay at each other's homes. On two different occasions, uh, these colleagues in ministry shared intimate details of what they were going through in life that was so strong, I almost wanted to leave the room. Or felt like, why in the world are you sharing this with me? And so I understood that we had gone through the, the, the surface intimacy that you guys all do in the atrium, right? Football, golf, interest rates, Donald Trump, right? You go through all this. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great, blah, 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 right? But we got below the surface. We knew each other enough to become transparent to trust. Friendship is about availability. It's about initiation. It's about sharing each other, sharing your family, sharing all that you are. Another key to friendship, and the reason for a lack of friendship, and I'm going to step on some toes here, is some people have no intimacy because they're self-absorbed. Self-absorbed people talk about their life, talk about their job, their desires, their careers, but make no room for others. As uh, soon as you interject, they're like, oh, well, I got to go. Didn't realize how late it was. You don't want to be self-absorbed. Uh, you know what else friends do? They bring candor to the relationship. Now, we all have blind spots, right? You all know what your blind spots are? No, you don't. That's why they're blind spots, okay? <laughs> it takes a friend to point them out. Now, if Joe Blow today comes up and says, Pastor Bob, I think you have a blind spot. I'm, like, not going to listen to you. Because we're not living life together. We're not at a soulish level. David listened to Nathan because they had lived life at a soulish level. David, you're the man. David, here's what's going on. This is another reason we need friends. Proverbs 18 said there's a man who brings himself to isolation, and that means he brings himself to ruin. I love the story of Job's friends when he lost everything. The greatest thing they ever did for him was to sit for seven days and not say a word. Just be present. Now, because I believe church isn't a place built around guilt, but around growing, I want to talk about how 2016 could be your year of intimacy, how this missing ingredient can be fulfilled. I think the first thing is defining reality. Grade yourself. How are you doing on this? Uh, use your card. You know, do you have intimacy with people outside of your marriage? Is there intimacy in your marriage? How many friends do you have? One of the things you can do is pray about it. God, I long for friendship. I long for connection. God, what steps can I take? Maybe it's a retreat. Maybe it's a small group. I want to challenge all small group leaders to get beyond the surface level and begin to live life together. Talk about serious things. Pray about being a friend. What are the things? What are the blind spots keeping you from intimacy with one another? And then finally, I want to talk about spiritual intimacy. I started off by saying, God's not enough, we need people. Well, people certainly are not enough, you definitely need God. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said you need a day with God and you need a day with people. It's about the way it works. So I want to talk about spiritual intimacy because for 21 years of my life, I didn't have it. I didn't know God was listening. I didn't know you could talk to him. 
The psalmist in Psalm 62, verse 1 says, Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my defense. I shall not be moved. Adam knew God this way. He walked with God at the time of the evening breezes. We'll never know what that was like. Adam and every human being since has had a hunger to know God in this way. This, this drives anthropologists crazy, by the way. Uh, they wag their heads because in every culture on earth that you study, every society, no matter how whacked it is, has a belief in a God or gods and a way to get to him. Why? Purpose. The void. Augustine said our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. You know what a beauty of a relationship with God is? Do you know what the beauty is when God's here? It's wonderful. The beauty is God never sleeps or slumbers. Here's what I like about God. He never tires of us. We tire of each other, right? I even get tired of me. I was sharing with my staff once. I said, you know, I should preach less. And they're like, why? I said, because people are tired of me. I'm tired of me. I'm tired of listening to me. God's never tired. He longs to be present with his creation. He's for us. He's not against us. He's always moving towards us. He doesn't have any of the human foibles that we have in relationships. Some of you right now are feeling this really weird feeling. The weird feeling can't be expressed in words. It's something like this. God wants to get in the box. You're resisting. You're here today. You know he needs to be first. You're fighting. There's a sense of like, come on. Do it. Do it. Let him be there. Submit to him. Make this your day. Make this your year. Experience intimacy with God and let it overflow to others. Some of you that are believers, um, again, spiritual disciplines. I talked about reading the Bible, fasting, and prayer. Become intimate with God. I talked about scripture saturation. One of the beautiful things you can do is buy yourself worship music. Play it in the car, play it in your house. Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of the great expositors of the scriptures of the last century. And uh, he had a sermon called, What is Church? And his answer was, it was a gathering of people. You think, wow, that made him a great expositor? Well, listen to what he said. He said, church is the most unique thing in all the world. It starts with 120 people in an upper room. And everybody in here would say, oh, 120 people. If I could only be in a church of 120 people, I could be intimate. No, I already told you you can only be intimate with three or four. But something happened in that upper room. The Holy Spirit fell on them. And then conviction fell. And then Peter preached, and conviction fell again. And 3,000 were at it, 5,000 were at it. And then that wonderful scripture in Acts chapter 2 that, that they were in the temple courts with thousands, and then they went house to house, right? In small platoons, breaking bread and the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and prayer, intimacy. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the beauty of a church gathering is that the people that have gathered have figured the sin thing out. We've been transformed. We're now a people who know where we came from. We know where we're going. We know what we don't want to be a part of. We're not people on Saturday night painting the town red and then sitting in a place to check the box. We're going somewhere. 
We love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. This is the group you become intimate with. As Martin Lloyd Jones liked to say, this is church. This is church. When you can be known and know, you can love and be loved, you can give and receive, that's when church goes from here to there. And that's why Hebrews says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves as some, but more and more when you see the day coming. The greatest shot at intimacy is in this building with brothers and sisters who many will be closer to you than your own brothers and sisters because God has put eternity within our hearts. Last week we ended by singing Draw Me Close. It was our prayer. We sang it. So we built another prayer into the service. Can you all stand? This is another oldie but goodie. It's called Hungry. And as we sing, I know when I sing, it brings me back to my first love, to the early days, the hunger I had for God, the hunger for intimacy. We need God, we need each other. Let's sing this with all our hearts, and then John will end the service.